Thank you so much. And Kay Coleman, I'd love for you to talk about urban gardening and how you got started with the gardening that you've been doing at the Interface Food Shuttle. Can you hear me? Yes, there indeed. She is. Okay, Yay. <laughs> Thank you and welcome. Yay. I'm super nervous and super excited at the same time. <laughs> I've already talked about you, so you're fine. Oh Lord have mercy. Well, I'm gonna start talking. I'm gonna I'm gonna start talking about the Interfaith Food Shuttle and I'll end talking with the garden specifically. And so during the questions and the answers, y'all can ask me questions about the food shuttle or about gardening or or whatever you like, but I'm ready to go. So good evening, everyone. Um, I'm sure um, now you've already surmised from my accent that I am born and raised in North Carolina, <laughs> Red Springs, North Carolina, to be exact. <clears throat> and I'm here representing the Interfaith Food Shuttle or the Food Shuttle to talk about the ways that we approach the problem of food insecurity or it was, as it was called back in the day, hunger in our community. Um, before I speak about the food shuttle, I'd like to briefly mention the need. Uh, North Carolina is the 10th hungriest state in the nation. One in five children in North Carolina are food insecure. In our seven-county area alone, over 121,000 children applied to receive free and reduced-price lunches. And 18% of seniors in North Carolina face the threat of hunger. So our mission is this. The Interfaith Food Shuttle pioneers innovative and transformative solutions designed to end hunger in our community. The key words are innovative and transformative. Remember these words. We, we've never been a regular food bank that hands out perishables, non-perishables, and emergency rations to people that need help. These food banks are awesome and very important and needed. I mean, think about all the people that they help after our hurricanes, about how many food pantries they provide for. I call the Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina the mothership because they are tremendous and serve over one-third of North Carolina. But we're not in competition with other food banks. We approach the problem of hunger in our community in different ways, and ways that are innovative and ways that transform people's lives. We only serve Wake County and the six counties around it, Durham, Johnston, Orange, Edcombe, Chatham, and Nash. But let me tell you the story about how this food this food bank began. In 1989, our founders, Jill Stanton Bullard and Maxine Solomon, had children that were playing soccer together, and they went to pick up biscuits for the team. Well, this was back in the day when fast food places had biscuits until 1030, and then they started making the hamburgers. Um, young people don't get this part, because now people have biscuits all day long, but Anyway, they were getting ready to throw the leftover biscuits into the trash. And Jill said, don't do that. If you give them to me, I'll take them over to the shepherd's table. Um, is the local soup kitchen in downtown Raleigh at that time. And the person said, I don't think I can do that. So Jill said, well, just ask someone. So they called their boss, and then they called their boss, and she ended up taking 11 biscuits over to the shepherd's table. 
And I love telling this story because, especially the young people, because you never know when a small idea or an action can become something amazing that changes people's lives. Well, then she, then she started thinking about all the food in the grocery store that has reached the sell-by date. At that time, it was all being pushed into the dumpster, and so she started riding around in her station wagon, picking up that food that had reached the sell-by date and taking it to the shepherd's table. That year, she and Maxine collected 750 pounds of fresh food for the soup kitchen, and now we collected over 1.5 million pounds of food last year. We have refrigerated trucks that go around and collect the fresh food from the grocery stores. And this food comes into our little warehouse and then goes right back out to over 100 partners that distribute the food, like churches, community centers, senior centers, and food pantries. So from the beginning, the food shuttle recognized that one of the reasons that people are hungry is they don't have enough, and they don't have enough food, is that they don't have a job. So we started a job training program. The culinary job training program was started in 1998. The people that were accepted into the program were recommended by social services and were people that had had a hard time in life, um, like addiction problems, um, incarceration, and other challenges that made it difficult to get a job. This program usually had about six to eight students, and they'd work with our chef to learn how to work in the food service industry. They'd get their safe serve certification. They serve safe certification, I think it's called nice skills, nutrition, and many of the skills that enable them to find employment in the food service industry. And the Food Shuttle helps them find a job and maintains a relationship with these graduates as long as they want. So if the wheels fall off the cart somewhere down the road, they can come back to the Food Shuttle and get a little tune-up and hopefully get back on track. And, you know, some may say, well, you're only helping six, six or eight people at a time. But we recently graduated our 73rd class. You know, now, now the program is called an apprenticeship program because the students are paid a wage while they're participating in the program to help make ends meet um, while, they're, while, they're, while they're learning about their culinary skills. So from the beginning, the Food Shuttle recognized that our low-income neighbors that, that that need to use food stamps, uh, SNAP, EBT to make ends meet, tend to buy the poorest quality food because fresh food is so much more expensive. And areas designated as food deserts, which is um, where there's no grocery store within a mile, they tend to purchase food at corner stores that sell soda, beer, chips, but no fresh food. Hot dogs and soda are so much cheaper than milk and cauliflower. And because of this, many, many low-income families that are on this very tight budget have serious problems with heart disease and obesity and diabetes. So the Food Shuttle started a community health education program to teach people how to shop healthier on a budget and how to shop outside of the grocery store first where the fresh food is. Education is key to helping people change their lives by learning to change their diet. So our community health education programs make sure that clients know how to cook and shop healthy on a budget. We do guided grocery store tours at food line stores and give them a, a, a gift card. And they go out and are taught how to shop healthier on a budget. And we also offer um, cooking classes to 
so people can learn how to cook fresh, healthy food. But, but for the past two years, the big focus at the food shuttle has been child hunger and senior hunger. Our child hunger programs include Backpack Buddies, where elementary school children pick up a backpack that on, on Friday that contains six meals and two snacks for them to eat over the weekend. Many children receive free and free breakfast and free lunch at school and may not have much food available over the weekend. So this is why the Backpack Buddies program was started. So we right now we deliver over 3,000 of these backpacks every week, and this number is ever-increasing. You know, for the older children, there are in-school pantries for the students and the families in middle and high school. And these school pantries provide fresh produce, meats, and other non-perishable foods to the students, staff, and, and their families at 28 schools in Durham, Edgecombe, Johnson, and Wake Counties. And this model has really worked well in middle and high schools because it gives the kids the power to select what food they want to eat um, and, and select the food for their family. Our senior hunger programs um, is called Grocery Bags for Seniors. And these grocery bags supplement the fixed incomes of older adults through door-to-door distribution of fresh produce and uh, groceries. We provide about 2,000 bags a month of healthy produce and shelf-stable items to seniors in low-income senior housing. And this is our longest-running program um, at the food shuttle. But people don't come to our warehouse to get food. and take. We take the food to where people live. As I mentioned, the community partners like churches, community centers, senior centers are where we distribute the food and the fresh produce. This is designed specific, you know, to meet the people at their point of need. You know, transportation is an issue for a lot of people. We currently have about 100 community partners that help us to distribute the food. And, and these, are, these are great places for our community health education staff and volunteers to have cooking demonstrations and recipes. Because it's really important to educate people how to cook fresh food and new food, like kale. You know, we grow a lot of kale in the garden and at the farm, but if you don't know what kale is, you're like, no, I don't want kale. And kale's delicious, but, and so we prepare that at these sites and then give the recipe so when people take their kale home, they'll know how to eat it and they'll enjoy it. So we're one of the first food banks to have an agricultural department where we grow food and teach people how to grow their own food. You know, North Carolina is an agricultural state. And North Carolina Senator, former North Carolina Senator Vernon Malone used to say, you know, we were poor, but we never knew it because everybody had gardens and everybody put up food and shared. And, and this is why we think that teaching people how to grow their own food is important. So we have a farm. The Food Shuttle Farm grows food using sustainable organic growing practices and uses a lot of volunteers to plant and harvest this food. The 10-acre farm demonstrates ways that you can grow a lot of food and still be a good steward of the earth. Um, We have bees, chickens, goats, and we grow a lot of fresh produce. Last year, the farm grew 35,000 pounds of fresh local produce that went straight to our food pantries and to our mobile markets and agencies. Our urban, our urban agriculture education programs are focused on teaching gardening and nutrition education in the schools, mostly to education, I mean, elementary uh, age children. We help to start school gardens, 
and then educate the staff to effectively use the gardens as an education tool, providing curriculum that can include gardening and all of their subject matter. We currently work with seven schools in Wake County and five in Durham County. And all the schools that we work with have over 50% of their students on free and reduced lunches. And some of the schools, especially in Durham, are 95% free and reduced lunches. And something new that we're adding, this is super awesome, is um, we're beginning to work with low-income child care facilities to bring gardens to our youngest neighbors. It's called Farm to Child Care. And it's an effort to bring fresh food into our daycare facilities and to start gardens where children can learn healthy eating from a, a very young age. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if it was normal again for all children to have experience in a garden and growing and eating fresh food, and that was something that they expected? So now we're getting uh, to the area that I work in. The Food Shuttle has two urban learning gardens, one's in downtown Durham and one in downtown Raleigh. The main mission of these gardens are, are educa- is education, teaching people how to grow their own food. In Durham, our quarter acre urban garden is located in an area of Durham that used to, <laughs> it used to average 500 911 calls each year. It was an area of major drugs, um, but today the garden is part of a revitalization of this area. The Gear Street Learning Garden is teaching people how to grow their own food and demonstrating sustainable organic growing methods. It's also showing how to have a successful urban garden on a quarter acre vacant lot. I mean, there was a house there before the garden was there. We have picked up lots of bricks and blocks and lots of other things I won't mention. Um, but an urban, gar- an urban garden has many different challenges that other gardens don't have. I mean, and the first one is water. City water is very expensive, so to make the garden successful, we have a rainwater catchment system that collects rainwater from the roof of the building next door, and is, that is used to irrigate the garden. You know, another challenge is runoff from parking lots. So we... When we began, we have a um, a parking lot that's right next to the garden, and the runoff from the parking lot next door would wash the garden out into the street during a hard rain. So we const- had to construct a, what's called a rain garden that helps to, us to collect this runoff from the parking lot and then gently release it into the garden. I mean, it's a big pit that's filled with sand and has plants planted all around it to absorb the water, and it has helped tremendously. But this little garden also has a native plant uh, pollinator garden, a composting area, a vermicomposting area, which is composting with worms, beehives. And this little production garden produced um, last year over 2,200 pounds of fresh produce that's given to three food pantries in Durham. And there was not one watermelon grown. That All that weight was from Spinach, kale, lettuce, carrots, beets, turnips, peppers, tomatoes, beans, peas, squash, sweet potatoes, to name a few. Our Camden Street Learning Garden in southeast Raleigh is located in the middle of what's called a food desert. And I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but a food desert is a is designated is a place where there's not a grocery store within a mile. And public housing surrounds our garden. 
And this one acre garden is five vacant lots that are linked together and it has 23 community garden, um, 23 community gardeners. And these are people from the community that are growing food for themselves, their families and their neighbors in, in, in our garden space. This amazing gardener garden also has a native pollinator garden, has beehives, and it has a big rainwater catchment irrigation system from the church that's next door. It has a large outdoor community classroom, a greenhouse, and a, a large educational garden that grows food for the community. For the community, and we have a com- what's, what's called the compost kitchen is to teach people how to compost. Uh, most people get all excited about compost and they start composting. And after they have to turn it one time, they, they decide that compost is not for them. Um, we also have something that's called a food forest at Camden. And this is a non-traditional garden that grows culinary herbs, medicinal herbs, pollinator plants, berries, fruit trees, and is a, is a quiet space for just enjoying the garden. We have an indoor kitchen also in this space um, where we um, prepare food. And so because that's important, people don't know how to prepare fresh foods. It's, people have forgotten and now we're reminding them. And so we're, we use this kitchen to do that. Our community gardening program uses um, raised bed garden boxes. They're made with um, wood and they're 12 feet long, 4 feet wide, and 24 inches high. So you can grow a carrot in these boxes. And this really works great for people that it may be difficult to bend down to garden because many of our community gardeners are seniors. And one of our gardeners this year um, is Miss Clara. She's 84. And she's out in the garden all the time growing and growing more tomatoes than any 10 people can eat. She was speaking to a group. I overheard her speaking to a group that came out to tour the garden. And she just, I overheard her saying how much she loved working in the garden. It was peaceful and she was eating so much better. And then she paused and she said, and you know what? My balance is so much better. I mean, this is just another benefit of getting out and growing food. Both of these beautiful urban gardens, we, we offer six-week beginning gardening classes. And we, we usually, now this, is, this information was pre-COVID. So with COVID, we are not having any in, um, in-person uh, education at this moment. But um, we, we, before COVID, we were offering 12 to 14 workshops like on medicinal herbalism or preserving your harvest with canning. Um, every month to our gardeners and to people in the community. You know, the food shuttle has recognized the importance of being able to grow your own food, fresh food, especially, especially during these challenging COVID times. So we're taking our community gardening program on the road with a newly launched initiative called Gardens for Everyone. And this program will build raised bed garden boxes, similar to those that we have in our at Camden Garden in backyards and community spaces for any anyone interested in growing their own food. Gardens for Everyone provides uh, community members with a safe and a sustainable way to access, to access nutritious food. So the challenges of social distancing and stay-at-home orders due to COVID-19 make it even more important than ever for individuals and families to be able to grow their food at home. This program is an extension of our successful community garden program, and it addresses 
It also addresses the limitations that our community gardening program has had that are you know, the limitations associated with um, like not everybody has transportation to get to the garden or not everybody has childcare available so they can come and work in the garden. So um, by having the garden right outside your door, it, it eliminates all those, all those challenges. Um, so I've lost my place here. Okay. Being able to grow your own fresh produce right outside your door assures that you and your family will have a convenient and affordable way to eat delicious fresh food all year round. And the additional benefits of having your own garden are the physical exercise, mental rest, and, and the nutritious harvest that the garden provides. I always say that gardening is good for your health, but it's also good for your soul. Um, this program is being piloted in Wake and Durham counties right now. It's, I mean, this is our first week, and we've already got 10 applications, so it's really taking off. But it's open to any individual, family, or organization that wants to grow their food at home or, or the community. But the only restrictions are you've got to have enough sunlight, enough water, and space. Um, those are the only requirements. And to make the program affordable, the Interfaith Food Shuttle has a pay-what-you-can pay policy with a minimum contribution of $25 from individuals or families and a maximum con contribution of $200, which would be the full price of these garden boxes that come with, with soil and everything ready to go. Um, well, I've briefly shared with you all the innovative and transformative things that the Interfaith Food Shuttle is doing to fight hunger and food insecurity in our community. You know, hunger is real for so many of our children and our seniors in our community. Support from organizations like yours help to keep us working to shorten the line, as they say in food bank circles, where there will be less and less people that need assistance because they will have the skills to make good nutrition choices for their health and even learn to grow their own, to, own food. So thank you so much for this opportunity to share this information about the Interfaith Food Shuttle with you. And I hope it wasn't too boring, and I hope it's what you wanted to talk about. But now I understand we have time for some questions. So uh, my specialty is gardens, so I welcome questions about, but I welcome questions about any of our programs. Or if you want to know the best time to plant your fall garden, I'm glad to talk about that. So I guess I'll turn it over to Joe, and she's going to uh, – lead that if i'm not mistaken is that right okay Jane? you've been you've been at the food shuttle doing urban gardening for eight years yes uh-huh mm -hmm. and i'm curious about what made you decide to take that on to teach other people gardening and how you were educated in doing your own gardening well that's an yeah just because y'all can't see me i'm not um when i was at state back in the 70s um i went to nc state university and majored in horticulture and animal science and back in those days in the 70s i was taught um how to grow things but also um, how to identify insects or diseases or weeds and what to spray on them. And when I graduated from state, I worked as an extension agent in at, in Virginia. Um, 
I was um, I was the horticulture agent, and I worked with the 4-H program. But it's, it's kind of a long story. I've, I've done citrus research before down in Florida, and I've done, and this is my dirty, dark secret, so I'm telling it to all of you, but don't repeat it. But this is just how the world has changed. Back when I graduated, um, the, the job that people could find with my skills was in pesticide research. So I worked on research farms doing pesticide research for years. And I, and like I call it my dark secret, but now what we, I have the privilege to teach people how they can grow food sustainably using organic methods so that they can be a good steward of the earth. So we can, and every time people come to the gardens, I'm able to talk to them about ways that you can control your insects without killing other pollinators or contaminating our water supplies so it's it's pretty interesting um i have young people coming to the garden now that you know this is what they're taught they're taught sustainable agriculture and so these things like this give me hope because you know 40 years ago or 40 plus years ago that was not even talked about and i don't think they even knew the word organic so I came back, to, I have lived in other places in the world, and when I came back here, I started just volunteering at the Interfaith Food Shuttle Farm um, because that has been, always been near and dear to my heart. I love being outside. I love watching things grow. And so that is just simply by volunteering at the farm is how I got back into gardening and growing. And, uh, you know, I'm just super super grateful to be able to be in this urban area now I, I was the farm manager for four years and most recently the past four years i've been in the urban area because i am in an i am in downtown raleigh i mean there are buildings and there are sirens and there are ambulances going by all the time but you can walk in that gate and see the most amazing garden and people are they have not had the opportunity to see their food being grown and you know i get to share that so every single day i go to work it's a great day i mean well maybe not every single but almost every single day because you know when i i have the pleasure of letting a child harvest carrots or for that matter letting adult harvest carrots because they're just amazed when they come out of the ground and because we've kind of gotten disconnected from our food especially you know for those of you that live out in the rural area, you're like, whatever, we've had a garden forever and ever. And um, But for the people in the urban areas, they don't often get to see uh, <clears throat> you know, things growing and actually get to harvest them. So one of my favorite um, things was we grew peanuts. And people don't realize that peanuts grow, they are in the soil. They're not on a tree, you know, you're not on a bush. And I had a group of HIV chemists from GlaxoSmithKline one day that came out to volunteer, and we harvested peanuts. And you would have thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever done. They got so excited because they could not believe that that was peanuts coming out of the ground. And so, you know, when I go to work, people are happy. (laughs) So I don't know if that answers your question, Joe, but that's a little bit about how I got to where I am. Very, very awesome. And 
let's see some hands raised and get some more questions from the group now. Okay, our first hand is um, Tamika. Hi, Tamika. Actually, this is this is Mr. Tamika Pope. This is Mr. Uh, Tamika. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Miss Coleman. Yes. You get me where I live. I grew up in Johnston County on a farm, uh, dealt with gardening all of my life. And, you know, when my parents were raising food and I loved it, um, I noticed uh, that you didn't mention anything about canning. because uh, we in our garden, when we gardened, uh, canning was went hand in hand with it. And uh, I also looked forward to that, too, though I just got in the way when my mother was doing it. But uh, are there any classes in canning? Because, you know, because of the um, virus thing, canning has taken on a new uh, thing. It's gotten bigger. And it's difficult to find jars and, li- well, lids, especially in this day and time. So are, are you, is this generation, well, the older people would know, but uh, are there people that don't know about canning? Um, and do you have classes in that? or We do have classes in this. And, you know, I have to preface it by saying COVID has changed our world because we, yes, are yeah. having, we are having volunteers and people come to the garden, but they have to be masked. We aren't, do, we aren't doing anything that's in the kitchen where people are close together. We're super careful about that. But before COVID, canning was a very popular class because, you know, you, you if you're from Johnson County, you know that, you know, a tomato plant puts out a lot of tomatoes. And you, yes. you cannot possibly eat all those tomatoes. So by learning to can them, you can have, you know, you can have fresh tomatoes um, all year long. And so oh. that's, that's something that we do. It's very important is learning how to preserve because you cannot eat all the cucumbers your little garden is going to, <laughs> to produce. <laughs> <laughs> also, I want to ask, um, what about, now we just took a handful of fertilizer. We use that uh, fertilizer that we get, in, so we call those guayana sacks or whatever you call them. Um, now, you use, uh, what kind of, what uh, components go into your compost, um, well, garden or whatever you use to fertilize the, um, the garden with? Well, we do, we do make compost. Um, and we actually have a partnership with us. It's a, a, I mean, things are some cool stuff is happening, but it's a little company called Compost Now. And Compost Now rides around these trucks, especially with restaurants, and collects all the food waste mm-hmm. from these restaurants and from, and from people's houses. And the, I mean, they they come, they bring some of it to our garden, and we demonstrate how to make compost using food waste which is called the greens. And then you put leaves on top of that and you mix, you know, mix it together and it heats up to about 140 degrees and breaks down. And by the end of the process, it looks like soil. And what makes compost so special is the microbes that are in that compost because, you know, earthworms, microbes, that's a healthy soil right there. So we do use compost, um, on our beds but as far as fertilizing and see this is where i've learned a lot we use composted chicken manure and we buy it it's um it's a five 
um, 543 um, NPK, and it smells terrible, but it is it's very he- healthy for the soil. Um, and, and, you know, more and more people are paying attention to how we treat our world. And so more and more places are starting to carry this composted chicken manure um, as a fertilizer instead of the, the chemical, the, the, synthesis, the synthetic fertilizer like 10, 10, 10. And I'm not making a judgment about anybody. You know, I'm just glad to grow food. But, but we do try to demonstrate those ways. And so that's what we use. And the one we particularly use is called Harmony. And, you know, so you can get it, especially at some of these old um, farm stores, n- not like a big box store, but like at a, 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 an older farmer supply store. Does that, does that answer your question? Oh, he's muted. Uh-oh. He muted. <laughs> Do you, um, if I can interrupt, would you please talk about the three elements in this chicken manure um, fertilizer that you mentioned? I don't, I don't know what you mean. For instance, when you say 10, 10, 10, is that like Rin 10, 10, or is that no. something else? <laughs> no. Um, the, the way there are certain elements in the soil that a plant needs to grow and be healthy. One of them is nitrogen, and nitrogen is what makes the leaves grow, the plant grow, um, the roots grow. And then it's phosphorus. And, and that helps with the blooms, you know, they're, 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 all of these work together to, to provide the vitamins that plants need. And the last one is potassium. And so most just general fertilizers, they have, um, you'll see on the bag, it'll say uh, three, three numbers. The first number, like if it's 10, 10, 10, that means 10% nitrogen, 10%, 10% phosphorus, 10% potassium. The organic fertilizers don't have as much as those um, the synthetic ones. So, like the chicken manure that I was talking about, the big smeller, it's um, five percent nitrogen. So it's it's not going to be such a jolt of nitrogen as the other ones. But those are the common ele- elements that plants need in order to be healthy. And there's, then there's micronutrients. I mean, in soil science, you, you can go really deep, but that's the basic, basic stuff. Does that does that answer your question? Absolutely. Okay, good. And I have some more hands for you. Great. Right. Right. Yes. All right, we have Todd. Hey, Todd, Todd. You may, Todd, you may unmute. Um, my question is this. When you, uh, uh, when uh, Jill uh, was going to uh, give the uh, biscuits, Away, did she meet any opposition when she volunteered to take it to the uh, food bank or the soup kitchen? Well, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the answer is this was 1989, and things were not quite as uh restrictive as they are today. So, you know, she would ride around like when she took those biscuits, it was only 11, they cut them up and you know, took them, but. There wasn't all the, the guidelines that they have today. Today, we have to have a lot more accountability about where the food comes from, you know, things like that. But, yeah, she would ride around with her little station wagon, her little Subaru Forester, and, and have all this food in the back. And um, But now we have 
temperature gauges, all these things to make sure that the food doesn't ever go below a certain temperature. Um, so she didn't really have any, you know, there just wasn't, she just did it. I mean, she just thought this was a good idea and she just did it. And I mean, that's, like I say, like I said, this is such a remarkable story to me because such a little thing can turn into something so amazing. I mean, she never really thought about it, and then it just now, thirty-one years later, we're still going strong. <laughs> did that answer okay, your question? Y- yes, I did. Thank you. Okay, next we have Tim. Hi, Tim. Hello there, Kay. This you made a wonderful presentation and very Hi, interesting. Paul. Thank you. In fact, um, you really did. You really did an excellent job. Well, thank you. Now, there's only two. Well, there's one thing that that I want to comment about transportation-wise and one thing that made me very sad. And that was at the very beginning of your presentation. We said, and we only serve, we Wake County and the six surrounding counties. And you know what? I didn't even hear Wayne County. And I realized that's out of just out. barely out of your region. So yes. uh-huh. what we need to do is figure out how do we get it so that you or y'all can extend and somehow involve people in more and more counties. And I realize you have to get participation from these counties to make that happen. So, yes. And you know, when you're, when you're dealing with something like Wayne County, um, it's almost like you have Southern Wayne County and you have Northern Wayne County. And if, if you've ever been in this area, you know, it's like you can easily overlook one of the county, like one of the parts of the county. So we need to be sure that when you reach out to Wayne County, because I'm believing you're going to one day, that we can work out so you can involve the whole county. Now, the other thing <laughs> is... Um, the transportation, you know, I I have seen the food banks and the food shelters and things. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, that's wonderful that people can come and pick up food. And, of course, there are meals on wheels. It's prepared meals. Yep. Uh-huh. But one of the challenges is what about the people that can't line up transportation? They don't have a driver, can't afford drivers, yep. that sort of thing, to be able to get the food to where they are. Right. Uh, do you all deal with that a little bit? Absolutely. And that is why um, we have community partners that distribute the food. So and it's almost like a spider web going out. So we'll, we will take the food to um, a church or something, let's just say in Durham County. And in Durham County, Durham, you know, Durham gets a lot of bad publicity, but Durham has got it going on. They have 63 food pantries in the city of Durham. And the reason there's so many is they're in little, so like a church will have a food pantry that's open once a week or maybe once every other week, but it serves the people that are like within walking distance of their, of the, of the church. And, you know, that's addressing just what you, what you are talking about. So we deliver the food. And then it goes to to the food pantries, and they are the ones that distribute the food. Because you are so right, transportation is a big issue that people, and it's it's just if you haven't been exposed to it, you don't realize that. You know, for lots of people, if it's not on the bus route, they ain't, they're not going. And um, um, so, 
we all we take that food and take it to where the people are. So, you know, community centers, especially community centers that are in areas where there's public housing and stuff, those are great places that we go and drop off food and have, you know, what we, we call it a mobile market is where we set out all this fresh food and people can just kind of come shop. So it's it's a huge problem. And that's, that's exactly another reason why we're starting this Gardens for Everyone program. Because not everybody could get to the community garden to garden. So now, if 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 they've got sun and water, they can have a little garden outside their house, so they can grow and, and have access to fresh food anytime. Well, I'm going to be speaking tomorrow at three o'clock, and uh, so I'll you if you happen to be able to check in, you can hear our contact information. But if you ever see that you can. Uh, that you all can extend down or want to try to reach down to Wayne County and involve some people down here. Uh, please let me know. Uh, the people here, Joe and others, they have my number. You just ask them, what's that crazy guy talking about Wayne County? What's his number? And just give me a call. Hey, Tim, we've got your we number. Make, no worries. Can, that's right. We can. You have my number. We can make things happen. Yeah, thanks for your question. And, Joe, I'd, I'd like for you to sh- – I'm happy for you to share my contact information <clears throat> um, you have my email address, but also the, the website for the food shuttle or it is um, foodshuttle.org and there's lots of information there, but you can just contact me and if I and I can either I can answer you a question or I can help you or I can surely direct you where you want to be. But um, I'd love to hear from people. Um, awesome. Let's see if there are other questions. Next we have Carrie. Good day from down under. No way! Oh my gosh! That is awesome! Oh, you did make it! I'm so happy. Thank you so much for your help and support, Joe, and also Lacey for making sure I got the link. And it's my first audio only webinar. So this is exciting because I'm an, a sighted audio describer, but it's just a delight to join you. Thank you. Um, Kay, thank you for your amazing presentation and your video was on and it was just a delight to see your face lighting up with such passion when you talk about this. So thank no, you. my main darling cannot be on because I... <laughs> you look amazing. I could describe you, but I won't. <laughs> this is like a nightmare coming to life, right? <laughs> okay. Now, what is wrong, Carrie? I, I was absolutely fascinated by the uh, backpack buddies. We uh-huh. have a, a school breakfast club here in a number of uh, school areas where kids were coming to school and not being able to concentrate. And, but the backpack buddies is a real interest. Could you explain a little bit more about uh, sending those kids off on a weekend with their food? Yeah, the backpack buddies, in the, it, it, it's a program in the whole United States. So um, we are just one of the agencies that is doing it in this area. Mm-hmm. But in, in the United States, in North Carolina in particular, there's a lot, a lot of, um, well, there's a lot of children that, that will only get their breakfast and lunch free at school. And they may or may not have food at home. Right. And so we it's been found, you know, that that's really um, serious over the weekends that, that they could come to school Monday with having had very little food. Mm-hmm. So the way the program is set up is the children that are receiving backpacks um, are recommended through their social worker at school. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first, to be honest, it used to be a, a, an actual backpack they pick up. But then the kids, they did not like being singled out to receive a backpack. Right. So now it's just a little grocery bag that they pick up. They walk as they walk through the door, they just pick up this bag. And so we found out it's still called backpacks, but it's, it is just a little grocery bag that they pick up. Right. And uh, so, you know, they it's, it's um, one of the challenges of the program is, you know, most of the food in these um, backpacks is shelf stable. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get more fresh food in it, but it's, it's tough to get fresh food to make it home on the bus and things like that. You know, we have a lot more fresh food in the, the school food pantries, but um, you know, that's an issue that we're still trying to work out the kinks is getting the fresh food in those backpacks. I don't know if that helps you. Yes. Thank you. That is uh, that idea of the uh, shelf safe food was one of my interest areas. So great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We have no more hands right now. Okay. Well, I just, I want to say um, thank you to the North Carolina Council of the Blind for supporting the food shuttle. Um, that's how I got here. Y'all probably wonder, how did this woman get on this conference? <laughs> but that's how, because um, you have supported the food shuttle. And as a nonprofit organization, you know, it, that's how we roll is with, with donations and support from the community. So Thank you so much. Now you know how, where your money went. <laughs> I have one last comment. Okay. And that is to say thank you so much for honoring us um, by being here. And also, um, I I would wonder if we wanted to participate or individuals wanted to participate in doing our own gardening, um, would your food shuttle be willing to work with us? Um, teaching us how to use our senses of touch and hearing and smell. I'm sure we could detect the fertilizer, but maybe not the other components of gardening. Would we be welcome to participate, even if we had no need and could give back some of the produce that we might be growing how would that work do you think well that would be lovely i mean we we want my vision is everybody has a garden in the whole world and has some has a fresh tomato for a blt you know yeah that's my plan but you know we would love to um we would love to, to, to um, include you with our gardening education, and we could do special gardening education. We have a new person on staff at the Camden Gardeners, a young, a young man. Well, I call anybody under 40 a young man, <laughs> <laughs> but he's a young man, and he has um, uh, got a lot of experience teaching also. So we, we would love, you know, just contact me and let me know what you need. And, but also if people are in the Durham Wake County area, you know, you're, you're open to have a garden box and it, this is just the pilot because like I, like I said, we just started this program a week ago. I mean, this is the first week. So we're, we want to expand out to all the counties, but we have to start small or it, you know, we, so if sure. anybody's interested in a garden box, they just, you just need to let me know and we'll put your name right on that list. 
But sure. I'm happy to talk to you about ways um, that I, I think I think it would be a lovely thing to garden because of the smells, the feel. There's nothing better than having your hand in the soil, and um, unless you have a nice manicure. Now I've never had that problem. <laughs> but um, just get, get in touch with me, Joe, and let me know what your needs are. Thank you so much, Kay. And, well, it's uh, my pleasure. It's, it's my pleasure. Well, it's been our pleasure to contribute to food insecurity and also to hear the origins of the food shuttle and how we can do more to help get people fresh food and um, uh, shelf-stable foods. We don't have it. Yeah. So hunger is a problem. It is a problem. And um, it is a real problem. I don't think we quite understand those of us who have food on our tables and shop at grocery stores. Um, I'm sure it would be a delight to grow some carrots or cucumbers or something like that. So thank you for coming and you're welcome to stay or leave as you wish. Well, thank you so much. Oh, Lord, I just saw my picture. Y'all are, I'm in big trouble. Oh, my no, gosh. you're not. Yes, I am. Okay. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, contact me if you, if you would like to um, get some more information. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay. We have our next presenter at 8.30, and maybe Lacey has something to say to us. Well, yes, Joe, as a matter of fact, I do. So, as was mentioned earlier, I don't know if everyone heard or not, but I am the door prize diva. And we have some great door prizes that were donated by some individuals, by some of our local chapters, and by our state affiliate as well. So, what I'm going to do is I have an app on my phone called Tiny Decisions, and I am going to hit a button and the app will spin and it will land on a name and the name that of the individual that it lands on will receive a door prize. And our first door prize is going to be a $25 visa gift card that was donated by the North Carolina state chapter. Um, so without further ado, let's spin the wheel and see who our winner is it's slowing down so the winner is vernon richmond um he is from alamance county i know him um and so just to let you guys know what we will do is i will get the information um your mailing address to whichever chapter's prize you win and they will mail you um the gift card so that you can buy yourself something nice. Um, so we will do. Um, I'll do a second one because I know we have some time and we have more prizes than I thought we would. So that's good. Our second one is going to be a $25 Walmart gift card from the Raleigh Wake chapter. And the winner of that one. The wheel is spinning. 
will be Anthony Yellick. Apparently, Alamance County has a lot of luck tonight. Ooh. Um, so we will get Lawrence Anthony's information, and he will get that card to Anthony. Um, and just to reassure you, this app has a setting that I have turned on where no one can win twice. So don't worry. The people who have won, so um, Vernon and Anthony, are no longer in the drawing because they have already won prizes. So you have no worry about that. And like I said, we will get the information for these individuals to the respective chapters to get you your prizes. Um, if you are listening with us through the ACB radio stream and you would like to be entered to win these prizes, head on over to www.nccbinfo.org. Register for our convention, pay the little $10 registration fee, and your name will be added to the prize wheel for our next um, drawing. So I'm going to send it back over to Joe. Hey, Lacey, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Joe? Yes, ma'am. It's Debbie Hazelton, and I just wanted to say hello to all of you and that I am super proud. Oh, you're sounding great. And I love that first guest. And I was listening first on ACB radio and you guys are just sounding absolutely awesome. And I am cheering you on. We need, we have one cheerleader who's already confessed to being a cheerleader. And now we have you as another yep. one. So you thank always you have very me. much. I was and, here first. Uh, I was your cheerleader first. Just You just, are right. Yes, you were. <laughs> From months back. You bet. You right. have been there for us. And we appreciate oh. you and this the entire ACB. And Rick and, and, oh, man. Awesome. All right. Well, keep on keeping on. <laughs> well, if you want to zoom in again, please feel free. All right. Now I think it's time for me to talk about our next presenter. We want to welcome Holly Stiles who argued on Wednesday in favor of every blind or visually impaired person having an accessible, independent, and private means of going to the polls from the comfort of their own home or wherever they choose to fill in a ballot online and it's because of Chris Bell's efforts and his initiation that we were able to file suit against North Carolina and get the board of elections to do the right thing and help us to be able to vote accessibly and independently um, just the way people who are overseas or in the military service have done for a long time. So we're proud that Holly Stiles is with us tonight and I'm not sure if she's entered the room. I'm with you. Oh, thank you, Holly. Chris gave you a glowing introduction and did a much better job than I did. But thank you very much. You were a little bit hard to hear as we listened into the hearing. Um, but if you would just give us 
uh, a recap of how all this came about and why we got such a positive result. And then what happens from here? Yes, what happened from here? (laughs) I think that's the question on most people's minds. Uh, But to start at the beginning, the... uh, the North Carolina Council um, made disability rights North Carolina aware that the absentee voting program was not accessible. And the reason for that being like a lot of absentee voting programs, it's all done on paper. And so the request for an absentee ballot, the ballot itself, and then the process of returning the ballot all had to had to be done on paper and through the mail. And um, for many years, I think a lot of folks didn't pay a lot of attention to absentee voting because um, it was just not something that a lot of people took advantage of. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> And people really, really started paying attention to this idea that you could vote from home and you did not have to go to the polling place and you did not have to worry about what um, diseases and viruses and people you might run into along the way. And so North Carolinians as a group have requested I didn't check the numbers this morning, but we are so close to a million absentee ballots, which is um, like a seventh of our voting age population. Uh, we've got about 7 million voting age people in North Carolina. So that, that's a huge number. And there are still four, uh, 39 days of voting left. So the chances that that number is going to continue to grow is is high, very, very high. Um, So like everybody else, um, voters with vision loss started to think about their options. And many people who knew that absentee voting wasn't accessible uh, probably were immediately concerned. And then folks who had never thought about it suddenly realized that it wasn't accessible. So we filed a lawsuit on July 27th, which is the day after the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, that was only after going to the board and letting them know that the absentee voting program was not accessible and giving the Board of Elections an opportunity to do something about it without having to litigate and hopefully providing an accessible balloting option in time for the election. And um, because we were not successful in persuading the board, unfortunately, we did have to file suit. And so once we filed suit, we thought maybe now the board will um, be willing to, to take some proactive measures to make the absentee voting program accessible. And it didn't happen right away. We didn't get any indication that that was going to happen. So uh, on August 13th, we filed a motion for a preliminary injunction, which is a request to the court for relief right now. 
And there is a particular legal standard that folks have to, to demonstrate to be able to get that kind of relief because it's considered extraordinary. You're, you're jumping the line. You're trying to, to get something right away when uh, the wheels of justice normally turn so slowly. And so the motion for preliminary injunctions asked again, um, as we've been asking all along, do something about the no, uh, November election. It's coming up. The absentee ballot is uh, all paper, and you're leaving out a lot of folks from that process. And again, um, no no response from the Board of Elections indicating that they were going to, to proactively try to ad address this problem. And so at that point, the process is you start with the motion, and then the defendants have a chance to respond. And so respond they did. And the response was, we just launched a new electronic system from a company called Democracy Live. And we admit that our program is not accessible. And we admit that we could allow voters onto the Democracy Live platform, which is um, known for its accessibility. It's used in other states for uh, folks to vote in an accessible ballot. Um, it's, it's got the ability to request the ballot online. It's got the ability to mark the ballot online. And it has the ability to return the ballot electronically. So the whole process can be done from home using screen readers, using screen magnification, using all sorts of assistive technology. And again, the board said, yes, we, we have this new platform. We, we just purchased it. We just rolled it out, but it's just too late for us to, to make that platform available to um, voters who are blind and, and low vision. But the, the response was um, interesting because they provided a timeline, and that timeline was we could do it in five weeks, which would still give people a chance to vote but it's just too hard. You can't make us do it in five weeks because the election is going uh, is going on right now. And if you make us put democracy live, uh, if you make us open it up to all these new voters, then um, bad things are gonna happen. Well, what are the bad things that are gonna happen? They, they didn't have any bad things that are gonna happen. It's just gonna be administratively inconvenient. And uh, they made a claim of that it would maybe be a security risk but again, we're talking about a system that is currently being used by overseas and military voters. And so if there's a security risk, then why are we allowing those folks to use this system? So we had a chance to follow up with the State Board of Election filing. We, we could um, file something called a reply, which was our way to reply to the claim they'd made to um, in response to our motion. And what we said was, basically we want accessible absentee balloting in this election, next election, all of the election. And we want large print options, we want braille options, and we want accessible electronic options. But for this election, because it's coming up, what if we just allowed people onto the Democracy Live platform, just just to give people one accessible option that you can roll out immediately. You're already using Democracy Live. Just give folks the same treatment 
at the military and overseas voters. And so that was the argument in front of Judge Boyle. And we, um, we had noticed on Monday of this week <laughs> that we would be arguing the case in front of him on Wednesday of this week. So that was just fantastic that he was so responsive and wanting to hear the case and wanting to make sure that if there was something that could be done in time for November, that it was done. However, it was a whirlwind, uh, it wasn't even 48 hours, maybe 40 hours. <laughs> and it was it was quite the, quite the experience to prepare for it. But Judge Boyle was prepared. He knew the case, he understood the issues, and he got to the heart of it. He just said, you are making this system available to overseas and military voters what is the you know what is the barrier here? You're using it. What what is the question? <laughs> Why are we here? He didn't get to quite that point. That's essentially what he said: is you admit that your program is discriminatory, that um, voters can't independently mark and return their ballots if they're paper. You admit that you're using this program for another group of voters. So just make it available. He's just made it sound so simple. And so the, the hearing was on Wednesday and by Thursday we had a decision. And that decision is that there will be accessible absentee balloting available through Democracy Live this election. The Board of Elections, uh, we haven't had a chance to to discuss or meet with them to find out exactly how it's going to roll out. So unfortunately, I don't have any specific information about how you can vote and when it'll be available, but it will be available and we will keep folks updated um, as, as we learn things and as information is shared about when people can start asking for that accessible ballot. So that catches us up to now. Um, I'm happy to, you know, fill any gaps that I missed or to take any questions. Um, we have Tim. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Holly, for your um, good work there and the work of the organizations. I was really thrilled uh, when I heard of the decisions. We've, uh, we've had a group. We've had a um, group of us that's really been interested in this for quite a while, uh, at least two years or more. And I'm just delighted to see that it's going to be uh, fulfilled. And I may have missed this, um, but apologize if I did. Um, is I understand there's a time frame of maybe a couple of weeks before the um, systems will be adapted so we can vote. And as a matter of fact, I was going to vote uh, early voting and go to the actual poll, but I told somebody, I said, if they can get this adapted in time, I need to use this system because they need to understand that people do want to vote by absentee ballot. And we need to avail ourselves of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for folks that have already voted, obviously, um, the ballot's in and <laughs> uh, good job getting your, your vote in. Um, for folks who are still trying to make a voting plan, um, you know, obviously you've got to do what works for you and what is going to, to give you the peace of mind to know that you voted. But if you 
are, um, if you've already requested a ballot, but have not voted it, or if you just have not voted, uh, requested your ballot at all, then that means you would still be eligible to use this system. And um, like I said, we'll, we'll be putting information on our website, but um, if you are wanting to, you know, be kept in the loop and if you're um, somebody who's really interested in, and um, you know, being, being one of the folks who identifies yourself as wanting to use this particular system, um, our intake email, which is intake at disability rights nc.org so that's that's our um website as well www.disabilityrightsnc.org uh but anyway if you send an email to intake at disabilityrightsnc.org and just uh the rights is plural there's an s on the end of rights um and just let in that email just say your name where you live your phone number and say you're someone who intends to use the Democracy Live system, um, then we'll know that you're somebody that we need to follow up with directly. And so that would be my suggestion for folks if you, um, you know, want to kind of identify yourself as somebody who wants to use the system. That, that's what I would do if I were you. Okay, that sounds good because, no, I have not voted yet. What I said is I was going to do early voting, but I've changed my mind when I heard about the ruling. So I will definitely be sending you an email and participate in that. So once Great. again, Thanks, Tim. all right, your, your next hand is Tamika. Okay. Once again, this is her old man with the question. Um, what assurances do we have that since we don't have a date in which the electronic um, voting will be available to us from this uh, new software, what, how do how what assurances do we have that that we got let's say five weeks roughly to vote? Suppose they don't make it available until the fourth week, and then they say, "Oh, well, we don't have time for everybody that wants to to utilize it." Do we have any assurances that that will not happen? So your your question is spot how on. How do we know? How do we know? that they want for some reason either something uh that a glitch in the software or human uh tampering that they won't make it available until the fourth week of the voting thus uh runs the possibility of everybody wanting to utilize it they won't be able to what assurances were you given from that uh, by the judge, or where, or he did he issue any? Well, let me start with um, the assurances, and then I'll talk about the the alternatives and, and planning. Um, so, if the state board does not make it available, they will be in contempt of federal court because mm-hmm. there is an order that says make this available. But the question of how quickly it will be available, um, that's where I was talking about, you know, making a voting plan that you feel comfortable with, because I am confident there'll be some amount of voting allowed on the Democracy Live system. I don't know when it will begin. And so that's a, that's a, you know, that's a fair question to ask, should I count on this? 
Um, I think you can count on it. I just don't know what sort of tolerance for not knowing when you'll be able to get on the system, you know, you can tolerate. And then also for some folks, if they had to make a backup plan, like if I can't get onto the system by a certain date, I'm going to go vote in person, then, you know, that's that's what I'm talking about, making a voting plan mm-hmm. is knowing what your first choice is. And then if that doesn't work out, what are your alternatives? Thank you for that. All right. Can we get Chris Bell back yep. in here? Uh, yeah, He's got his hand too. raised. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Tamika. And I'm sorry. I Chris, you can gentleman. speak. Thank you, Holly, for your terrific uh, advocacy on behalf of uh, NCCB and the blindness community, DRC, NC, and disability rights advocates have done an awesome job. And uh, we owe you guys a great debt of gratitude. Um, What I was going to ask is how familiar you are, uh, if you are, with the uh, state election board's procedures and rules that might come into play uh, here. They were a little busy uh, yesterday with uh, the resignation of two of their members. And uh, so do you have a sense of, of, I know that you haven't heard from them yet, but do you have a sense of of, uh, who the decision makers are uh, and what process they will use and I'm, I'm focusing on the process as opposed to the outcome because we don't know exactly what they're going to do. Yeah, so the, the State Board of Elections um, is made up of a mix of Democrats and Republicans. And so currently there are two seats on the State Board of Elections that are reserved for Republican members. Um, what Chris is referring to is that in response to another lawsuit where there was a settlement agreement and there was a process developed for um, for curing absentee ballots that weren't properly witnessed or had some sort of issue. Um, the Republican members originally indicated that they approved the settlement and then um, subsequently claimed that they didn't understand what the settlement involved and resigned from the board, which means currently the State Board of Elections has three members on it, three of whom who are Democrats. Um, and so in terms of the process for, um, what, how they're going to open up the democracy live system, um, you know, I, I can't predict exactly what they'll do, but my hope is that they already have a system and process set up for the overseas and military voters, meaning that there's already a way for somebody to say, I'm an overseas and military voter, and for that voter to be, um, you know, there's a workflow, there's a process. And so for this election, um, I don't see the necessity, personally, I know the board disagrees with me, they said as much in their court papers, but um, I don't think there's a necessity to identify people as blind or to identify that they need an accessible ballot in the um, in the electronic systems themselves. I think if we just treat voters the same, meaning that there's some indication that the person is eligible to use the, it's called UOCAVA, it's the, the federal law that um, applies to overseas and military voters. 
just treat blind voters as if they are UOCAVA voters, and you really don't have to make new or different changes to the database. You just become somebody who's treated like the people already using it. And if that were to happen, I believe the changes could be made extremely quickly and Democracy Live could be available extremely quickly. Um, but will that be adopted by the state board? Um, remains to be seen. Yeah, I think that there are two, uh, two things that are worth emphasizing. Uh, one is uh, that uh, if the order is implemented, uh, we'll be one of a relatively few number of states that has the ability uh, for us as blind people to request an accessible ballot electronically, uh, to mark it electronically and, and return it electronically. So that means uh, there's no postal service involvement. And also under this system that Holly is describing, uh, there's no requirement to have somebody witness your vote, which there is otherwise for people seeking to vote absentee by paper. And so I think we can, if once we're plugged in, uh, the system can move a lot quicker and without the necessity of involving a, a third party. And those are two, uh, I think, terrific benefits. And most of the other states that, not all, but most of the other states that are using Democracy Live, they can get their ballot and they can mark it, but then they have to print it out and uh, and mail it back. And under the judge's order, as I understand it, that won't be the case for us. Do you have any uh, further comments on that, Holly? So the, the judge's order doesn't speak to the print and mail question directly, but it does say that Currently, voters who are using the system are returning their ballots electronically, and that is not a security risk, or it's not an insurmountable security risk. You know, the board's allowing it to happen. And so the way the order reads, to my understanding, is if they're allowing it for that one group of voters and it's not an insurmountable security risk, then there is no legal reason that they would not allow um, blind voters the same ability to return their ballot electronically. Great. Thank you. Donna, do we have other yes, people we do. would like to comment? Do. Uh, question? We do. Area code 034. Am I there? You are. Well, see, I guess it took so long, and my question was answered. Um, but I do wonder if they're going to be, uh, when they make the plan on how they're going to, um, get the people to sign up, are they going to ask questions of organizations like ours so that we can spread the word to sign up? Yes, so that's definitely going to be part of our request to the community. Once we get some more information, it's for you all to tell your members and tell the people that you know and um, spread the word, absolutely, because you know we're, we'll do our best to publicize it. 
but you all are the ones at this convention. You're listening to me talk, so that tells me you're interested in this topic and you're going to be great at spreading the word too. So what I would suggest is, like I said, with no specific plan right now to talk about, is to tell anyone you know to check out our website, www.disabilityrightsnc.org, or our co-counsel, our fantastic co-counsel, Disability Rights Advocates. Um, they have just been right, you know, that when you say co-counsel, they really are um, fantastic partners and have been um, have been equal partners throughout this whole process. And they've done a really good job on their website as well at publicizing um, all the developments in the case. So Disability Rights Advocates is another great website to, to check out. We have another caller. Uh, uh, it is phone ending in 449. Uh, yeah. Hi, this is uh, Bob Warren. Um, this is great. Um, I think the time frame is a bit short, but um, I, I checked out after I got the information. I looked at how the system worked for the overseas and military folks. And um, I mean, most military people have a have a special ID. They're already vetted as being in the military, their spouses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how is the state going to know that, for example, I'm a, you know, visually impaired and, and, uh, um, and, and vet me as being eligible to use such a system or anybody else for that matter. So the, the vetting of voters in terms of, um, eligible voters, the voter registration rules still apply. So there's that, there's the voter registration database, um, and, if anybody hasn't registered, the North Carolina DMV is now offering an online registration process for anyone that has a North Carolina DMV driver's license or um, ID. So that's where the, the vetting to make sure somebody's an eligible voter will take place. But as to whether or not somebody is um, eligible to use the democracy live system, meaning am I in the category of people we're going to open up this uh, process to, I suspect there will be much like those for the military and for um, overseas civilians. So that, that's the other thing I want to point out real quick is um, you mentioned military, you know, they have IDs, they have spouses who have IDs. Well, what about overseas citizens? Like I can move to Canada and I can ask to vote in North Carolina if that's still going to be my place of residence and, and I don't have a special ID. So, um, but for somebody who wants access to the democracy live system, there's probably going to be, you know, I swear under penalty of perjury that I'm somebody who... Um, has a visual impairment and um, cannot access the paper absentee ballot, you know, privately and independently. I don't know how they'll word it, but the thing is, is that's all that the military and overseas civilians have to do. So again, the idea is that the law must treat people equally unless there's a reason not to treat them equally. So if a if uh, I promise I'm telling the truth is enough for everyone else to get onto the portal, then it should be enough for um, blind voters to, to use the portal as well. Our next person is Todd. Um, I don't have a question, but I do have a comment. Well, two, actually. Uh, first of all, um, you're the first blind lawyer I've ever heard uh, lecture, and so I'm going to say it's a great honor to hear a blind uh, lawyer get a talk. 
And second, I'm glad that the ruling came so quick. Uh, that's all I can, um, that's all I'd like to say for the present, but uh, that's it. Thank you. All I'd right. like to add, if I may, um, <clears throat> Donna, just for a second. Um, I have gone to the State Board of Elections website and I can't quote exactly. They are um, North Carolina State Board of Elections. Um, I have gone there. I have read all of the guidelines. I could request an absentee ballot and get it mailed to my address. I could check to see that I was listed as a registered voter. I could also track my absentee ballot to see when it would be arriving in the mail. And having done all that, not to be able to mark my own ballot and return it online seemed disgraceful. So if anybody wants to explore that option, um, go online, see how accessible it is for you um, insofar as it's developed now. Um, so I am very happy about this ruling and have been very grateful to disability rights advocates in California, as well as disability rights, North Carolina, for seeing this through to a positive conclusion. Um, if push comes to shove, I have time to get my absentee ballot in the mail, but I'd rather not. I'd rather hold on and see what happens and how it flies. Well, in a little shameless promotion from me, um, you know, one of the things that I find over and over again is when you do a case like this, there are people who say, oh, yeah, that, that's happening to me and, and I don't like it. And I'm so glad somebody did something about that. And so I just encourage uh, all of you who are listening to think about disability rights, North Carolina, when you're having failures to access, when you're wondering, has, has this been done in a way that's excluding me? And is that something that would be um, impermissible? under federal or state law to exclude me or to not provide accommodation. And I say that because our organization, by virtue of being the protection and advocacy agency in North Carolina, um, we're not legal aid. Uh, we can provide people legal services with, without regard to income. So a millionaire who has their own plane and yacht <laughs> and finds out that they can't vote an absentee ballot privately and independently is eligible for our services because of that federal mandate that we have. And that's what's really powerful about our organization is, is we are about disability rights and disability access and not about, um, or not only about, I should say, um, you know, issues affecting like basic income, basic um, wages, 
healthcare. We do that as well, but we do have this broader um, equal access mandate that allows us to do a lot more work um, than folks might be aware of. So I just want to put that plug in for us that, you know, we, we can't do our work unless we have people willing to come forward and um, stand up for what's right. And so some of those folks are on this call <laughs> and thank you for doing it. We appreciate you. Other questions? I have one more hand for you. Okay. My question is, when two two parts. One is what do we need? What information do we need to enter to participate in that democracy live system? And number two, so when we use that system to request our ballot, or maybe I'm confused, but when we use that system, how long does it take then to get the ballot and then to complete the voting process? So the first question about what information you'll have to enter, um, I don't know exactly what you have to enter because I um, haven't been through the whole process, but it's like basic demographic information. So like when you go to your polling place, you know, you're already in the poll book. And so you tell them your name, they ask you, are you at this particular address? So there's going to be that kind of question, the verification question to make sure that the right person with the right name is voting a ballot. Now, as to getting the ballot to the county board of elections, um, my understanding is that there's, you know, a couple days of processing. So like when somebody logs into the portal and requests a ballot, it has to go back to the county board of elections to verify that that person is an eligible voter to cast a ballot because, you know, all of our elections are done by each county board. So the county board is the one that says, yes, this is an eligible voter. And then they um, enable, however they enable, probably a click of a button on Democracy Live to send the, um, the voter back um, a link to get access back into the portal where you can review, mark, and submit your ballot. And once you do that, and you can take as many days as you like, it's not something where you have to sit down, fill it out, and turn it in. I mean, you can you can think about it if you need to. Um, but once you hit send, uh, it's at your county board of elections pretty much immediately. Now, there is a funny little wrinkle that the Democracy Live system doesn't feed directly into the voting tabulator. So there actually is a manual process of putting your ballot into the tabulator. But all of this is to say it's electronic. So we're talking about the whole process should, shouldn't take more than, you know, three, four days at most. And on your end, as the voter, the only time you're really sitting around waiting is uh, to get that link back from the County Board of Elections to cast your ballot. Thank you. And Becky Davidson? I don't know what list I got on, but just about every week I get a print fully inaccessible form telling me I can request an absentee ballot, So, um, which I don't keep. Um, and at one point that form was going to be made available online, and it was it was a PDF, but it was not able to be edited. So... At this point, as far as I know, there's no way to request an absentee ballot independently still. 
Um, I I did it. <laughs> well, I don't know how you did it. I honestly don't know how you did it well, because I tried it on my phone and my laptop and my iPad, and it was not. It would not edit. So. Becky, um, go through the Democracy Live portal to request an absentee ballot. So that was part of the rollout. It, the Democracy Live it, system has a ballot request as well. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm prepared to put on my mask and go vote if I can't do it electronically. <laughs> but um, but I really do appreciate the hard work that you and, and Chris and, and, you know, everybody did because this is so important. It took us forever, and I just moved to Charlotte. Uh, three years ago, but before I moved here, I lived in New York, and we were in a big fight just to get the accessible voting machines. So oh. you know, this is this is this is great progress, and and I really appreciate all the work that's gone into it, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to use it fully before November third. You and me both. <laughs> I know. I know. there are no other questions um i would like to thank holly and i'd like to thank chris bell for his hard work and i would like to suggest that spreading the word is one of the most important things that we can do tell your chapters tell other folks that you know from different organizations and meetings that you go to, um, contact your neighborhood network people and let them know this ruling. Because I, I have yet to hear it announced on the radio, and I plan to call my local radio station and let them know that this is worth talking about. This is uh, Chris. I wanted to add two points, if I may, if there's still time. Um, One, Holly, is that the Florida Council of the Blind uh, did some litigation against the state of Florida, and they reached a settlement. But recently, they have done, uh, and I guess it's in conjunction with their state or county board of election, um, a, what I would guess call a a mock or a, a trial run for people to try to see how to use uh, the Democracy Live platform in their county. They, they're only covered by five counties. Only five counties are, applied, uh, are covered in their settlement. But um, So there was kind of a, a mock trial event. And then they had another event, um, which was more educational, where a person who was blind and who uses a particular kind of screen reader called JAWS was demonstrating the, the keystrokes that one would use to uh, to actually uh, utilize the democracy live platform, and so what I'm what I'm suggesting to you is to the extent that uh, DRC of North Carolina uh, has input into the process, that it would be good if the state would uh, allow for uh, some uh, ex- experiential. Uh, training for people uh, in addition to just notifying people that the, that we have this right. Because I, I think uh, the, the experience of, of doing it is going to be important if people are really going to be willing 
to step up and do it. Uh, I, I think uh, Rosie Bichelle was telling me that uh, in the state of New York, um, in their uh, primary system, they didn't have democracy live most places, but only 136 blind people actually use the accessible system in the whole state of New York, um, which is astoundingly low. And we ought to be able to do a heck of a lot better than that. But in order to do that, we need to not only spread the word, but also to set up systems so people can sort of experiment and see how it works, so they have the confidence to then actually use the system to vote. I wonder if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, there's uh, definitely training uh, versions of it. And, and I know because I've gone to the presentation webinars where um, some of the different programs and companies were, were uh, doing demonstrations. And so I, I know they have um, what you're talking about, where you can go into the system and practice voting. Um I mean, I think what you're saying makes perfect sense. I am so unclear as to how much time there will actually be for folks to use it. And so I think that's going to be kind of trying to, you know, trying to get folks' attention on um, teaching people how to use the system versus, you know, for this election versus long term. And so um, that'll definitely be something to, to keep at the forefront that um, it's the new system, which is why people typically don't use it is not how they voted in the past and that training would be really, really helpful. And, and I can just, you know, I can hear that, <laughs> that pushback of, well, it, it's too late, but I have a feeling this has to be, there already have to be modules available because democracy live is a, a dominator in this field. They are, they must have already had this material available to folks. So um, that, that's definitely something to, to keep on the radar. Great. And the other thing I just want to throw out is for a future DRC NC NCCB project, uh, as somebody who was involved in writing the Americans with Disabilities Act, I think it's really important that the state and local government websites are accessible. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's required by Title II, and that the material that the government posts on those websites, such as, for example, uh, the governor's executive orders on COVID uh, are also to be made accessible. And I, I think there will be, I'm certain there will be places uh, that we will find that our state and local government websites or the materials posted thereon are not accessible. And I think that is an appropriate uh, action that we can take in conjunction with your organization, disability rights advocates. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Thank you. I have two more hands for you. Okay, let's take those questions then, Donna. All right. Well, one I'm put one down, so we still have one. Um, phone number ending in zero three four. You may unmute. Democracy Live. I, I must admit, uh, the young man sent me a sample of how that system works, and it is relatively easy. And I do believe that. Um, if we can get our hands on it again, and if it's going to be the same system, we can spread it around in a in a couple of days to get people used to it. It's it's not complicated at all. Yeah, that's, right. and that's my understanding. Is that it's extremely user friendly. It's um, you know a very streamlined interface, and um, 
you know, the, the whole way that it was designed was to make sure that people could, first of all, mark the ballot very easily, but mostly so that you could review it and have that confidence that you'd marked correctly and that it also alerts you if you've overvoted or not voted. Um, I mean, it, it's a system that really, really is looking out for you, is what I understand about it. It's about as easy as that uh, Lexmark, Automark, and, you know, it, everything is right there, front, center, and you can go back and change what you didn't mm-hmm. want. Yep, that's... So it, it's just a matter of getting it in some of our hands and let us spread it around. Yes. And, and one is there other thing a way... I'd like... Sorry, Carter. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'm thinking about those people who are not computer literate and would need to have assistance if someone would need to vote for someone else? Well, now now we must consider how you said that. If they are not computer literate, they're not going to be able to get it to begin with because it's going to come to a computer. And I, I do believe. Go ahead, Holly. I was just going to add to that. Um, the lawsuit is ongoing. So the victory on Wednesday and, and the order on Thursday are for the November 2020 election. But but the lawsuit continues on because um, one of the, the things that won't happen by November is large print paper ballots and Braille ballots um, for folks, like you're saying, who may not be computer literate or maybe don't have high-speed internet or don't have a computer mm-hmm. at home. Um, so I just want to make sure folks understand that the lawsuit isn't over because there's no permanent solution yet. We're, we're just looking at November um, at this point and trying to make sure everybody can vote in November. And then the long-term question is, how do we make the entire voting program accessible for all folks with all different types of technology preferences? Thanks for that note. That's a good, um, that's, that's good information also to be, um, running around to our members and their friends and families, et cetera. So if there are no more questions or comments, um, Holly, I would love to tell you what an honor it's been to have you here and to have been able to listen in on the hearing and to have you as an advocate for disability rights, um, the rights of people with any kind of disability. We appreciate that scope and breadth that you have. So uh, I'm very thankful that you've been able to be here. And I'd like now to see if other participants have any other comments, or is it time for the preview of tomorrow? I was just going to say that uh, whether it be before, time may not permit, but certainly after, we could have Zoom meetings where 
training, we could demonstrate such training. Those are all to be worked out after the convention is over. Well, Carter mentioned a sample, like a sample link that you could, a test link. And if that exists, could we just get that out to everybody? I mean, I, I, you know, they, they have sample ballots for sighted Mm -hmm. people. Um, is if there's a sample link that we could just use to go in and look at how it works and it, and it's readily available. If we could get that out to everybody, that would be really helpful. Holly. At this point, I'm not aware of a sample link, but I, I mean, I, I hear you all loud and clear that um, having the chance to explore the system is going to be really important. And so when we, uh, have our meeting with the state about how it's all going to work. That's certainly something that, um, you know, we'll, we'll make a point of featuring that, you know, folks want to understand the system and they want to get used to it before they're put on the spot to, to start yeah. casting the ballot. Yep. We need our training wheels and wonder if you know when that next meeting is going to be or when it would be regularly scheduled. At this point, unfortunately, I don't have any news for you. All right, we'll stay tuned then. Uh, Carter has another question. I, I, I got a, a note to add to that um, uh, sample ballot part. I can, if it's appropriate, I can contact the person that sent me that sample ballot and see if we can't get another one. Would that be appropriate? Yep, it's just a sample ballot that people can use to explore the system, I would think so, wouldn't it? I don't have any um I, I don't have any reservations about that. I mean that sounds fine to me. Okay, I'll I'll make a call Monday. Awesome. And there are no other hands. Okay. All right. And I wonder if it's time for Lacey to come on board again. Your door prize diva has returned. Woo! Yeehaw! Spin the magical wheel of names. Ooh, yes. Spinning. I hope we have participants. Still. Who will be the next door prize recipient will receive a $25 gift card to Walmart. And that was donated by the Greensboro chapter. And the winner of that card is Frank Mayo. So apparently Alamance County has something going for him. Oh he's my gosh. <laughs> I promise you that everybody's name is on this circle. I promise you. So let's draw one more. And this prize will be a $10 Walmart gift card donated by the Alamance chapter. <laughs> Uh-huh. Let's see if one of them wins it. Right. That actually goes to Mr. Bob Warren. So, Bob, I'll get your information over to the Alamance chapter, and they will get you a $10 Walmart gift card out in the mail sometime this coming week. So, congratulations. I'm glad that we got somebody that wasn't in Alamance County. And uh, I will turn it back over to Joe to give us a preview of tomorrow. Awesome. And... If you want to spread the word around that we are beginning at 10 o'clock sharp. So use the 
webinar links that you got for the entire convention. Um, they are good for the whole weekend. So just because you were here tonight doesn't mean that you can't come back tomorrow. We have business reports and committee reports and chapter updates. So come back and stay for Cindy Hollis talking about membership and membership growth as well as at-large membership. And then stay for the afternoon where Becky will be doing all of the emceeing. And um, I'm sure we'll have some funny stories to tell. Come and hear our own North Carolina entrepreneurs, Tim Snyder and Kate Franklin. Um, I want to I wanna see what's available from Wagalot. Because my dog does that. And I want to see if there's any way I can put rubber bands on her tail to keep her still. And I, this is Lacey again. I'd like to do another shameless plug. If you are joining us via the ACB Radio live stream and you would like to get your name on the magical wheel, you may go to www.nccbinfo.org and register for our convention. And once I receive your registration and payment, I will add you to the wheel to see if you can win your door prize. It might help if you say you live in Alamance County. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that might benefit you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that seems to be the four-leaf that's, clover that's of right. the evening. That's right. We well, love you, thanks, Alamance. everybody. Um, if, if people want to unmute and ask questions about tomorrow or make comments, you can do that.